morning, everyone. Well, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, the book of Acts uh, is, is an amazing book of the Bible. They all are, but so are the book of Acts. It records, among other things, the birth of the church, we say, but also the beginning of the new covenant. Now, the first couple chapters, you recall, in chapter 1, Jesus is kind of wrapping up. By the way, the book of Acts is part 2 of Luke's gospel. So, really, Luke wrote them both. But in terms of uh, the way the Bible was organized, we've split them up so you can get the, the gospels together. And then Acts uh, uh, launches off kind of part 2. But they were written together. And so you can see that, that Luke is talking about events in Acts that kind of picks up where the gospel Luke ends off. Acts opens with Jesus going back into a heaven, his ascension, and then really the, the disciples, not just the disciples, but about 120 of them, waiting for stage two of what God is going to do, what Jesus is going to do. And a lot of times when you read the Bible, especially the narratives, you're trying to get into the skin of what it must have been like for these individuals. And you think about in, in Acts chapter 2, they are just, if you're familiar, they're sitting in the upper room, this large room apparently. It could have been a chamber of some sort because there's roughly 120 disciples there. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be one of those 120, talking about the events that had just taken, uh, uh, taken place in the last several weeks. So keep in mind, Pentecost is 50 days after um, what well, well, we had Passover. So it had been... Uh, so that Jesus was killed or crucified in Passover weekend in the Jewish calendar, 50 days after Passover is Pentecost. And if you were here during our series on Jesus' work, you know the significance of Passover, Pentecost, and all of that. But basically, if you're not familiar, Jesus dies, raises to, to life again three days later. Spends 40 days with the disciples after he had risen from the grave teaching them all about the Old Testament pointed to him. Every event, every circumstance, every symbol of the Old Testament pointed to his ministry. For 40 days in and out, Jesus has been with his disciples. You imagine what that was like. The risen Christ shows up, disappears, I don't know, but for 40 days, he's with his disciples teaching them. And then Acts records that he finally leaves. Ten days later, we find the disciples are in the upper room. And can you imagine what conversations they're having? Because they probably reflect, amidst all the craziness that had been taking place, Jesus said the night he was betrayed that he wouldn't leave them as orphans, but that he would leave them another helper, the, the Greek word parakletos, a comforter, an advocate, a counselor. Now, you can imagine... In their excitement, they might have forgotten about that, but they do know they have to wait, but they're not sure what it was. And if you read Acts chapter 2, I, I, I mean, this is the thing, the problem with being so familiar with the Bible is that sometimes we lose the what in the world reality of what the Bible's recording. It says that they heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind. We actually sang that lyric in one of our songs this morning. And as they heard the sound of this mighty rushing wind... Flames of fire appeared over their heads, and it looked like tongues of fire. And, and, and could you imagine that they're all sitting here praying, not sure what to expect, and they look up, and there's like bobbing flames of fire on top of each other, and they're communicating in different languages that they did not learn or understand, and they just know what in the world's going on. And Acts records to us this excitement, this enthusiasm, just pours out of the courtyards or out of the room, and the city is abuzz with what's going on with these guys. We hear them speaking the mighty works of God in our languages. 
And in the midst of that, Peter stands up and preaches this amazing sermon in Acts chapter 2. And he says to the gathered crowd, who, by the way, said, these Christians, well, they didn't say these Christians, but they said, they must be drunk. Look at them. And Peter says, it is, we're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m., right? He says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. I will pour out my spirit, and it shall come to pass that everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Pentecost, the new covenant, had arrived. The promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit had always been active in the Bible, always been active in the Old Testament, but his ministry was, for the most part, relegated to the kings and the prophets and priests, those who God had chosen to accomplish his purposes. But now, in the new covenant, the Spirit of God would be poured out upon all of God's people in such measure that the new covenant, it was the signification of the new covenant was the Spirit of God indwelling the people of God, just like the prophets of old had said. For example, Jeremiah in chapter 31 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and I will, be, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Ezekiel says something very similar. And I will give you a new heart, the Lord says, and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The question we have to ask is, because, you know, they heard this from God, but, but how would this happen? How exactly is God going to make this amazing reality happen? Well, for the answer for that, we look to John the Baptist, one of the last of the Old Testament prophets. He said in Mark's gospel, John was saying, I've baptized you with water, but he, speaking of Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then in John's gospel, it says this, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, I love the, the grammatical construction in, in John chapter 1 because this verse parallels what John the Baptist says about Jesus four verses earlier, so I'll put them both on the screen here. In John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist says of Jesus, it is he who takes away the sin of the world. Then four verses later, it is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So what John is effectively saying is, that, look, this is the twofold ministry of Jesus. On the one hand, he will forgive the sins of God's people. He will cleanse them. And on the other hand, he's going to give them new life, the Spirit of God himself. By the way, this is an exact fulfillment of what Ezekiel said the new covenant would be. Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. This was the new covenant. Jesus' twofold ministry made it possible. Now, why am I saying all this in a, in a series on the Holy Spirit? Here's why. If we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit and understand all these various things, talk about the gifts, the power, the fruit of the Spirit, we need to see it in the con continuous flow of the work of Jesus Christ and the larger work of God's redemptive plan in history, or else if we don't do that, we're going to see the Holy Spirit in these little bits and chunks, little parts of him, 
and come up with some kind of strange ideas about him, or we're going to ignore him altogether. Either way, we lose out. In this morning's topic, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, is a good example of that situation. When we think of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we can either tend to think of them as some strange spiritual superpowers that we use in bizarre ways, and being discipled by Pentecostals, being a graduate of Pentecostal college, a college, I exactly know that tendency. Or we think this is so strange or we're not sure what to make of them, we ignore the daily ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives and to our, our, our deficiency because we lose the palatable sense of a living God who works in us and through us and amongst us. And so we want to have a good understanding of these gifts and so my goal this morning is pretty modest. I want to ask and answer four simple questions. Number one, what are the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Number two, what is the purpose of the Holy Spirit's gifts? Number three, how do you discover your gifts? And number four, why should you use the gifts? Now, like a lot of my sermons, we're just going to be able to, to, to top, the, uh, scratch the, uh, the, the tip of the iceberg. I won't be able to really get into it. So what I want to do is I want to give away a couple of books. This book here, Keep in Step with the Spirit by J.I. Packer, has been so helpful for me over the years in thinking about the Spirit in a balanced, even-handed way. It's a bit of a tome. It's about 300 pages. So if any of you want to do like a deep dive, I want to put this book in your hands. All right, young man here. All right. I don't know you. What's your name? Morgan. Morgan? Enjoy, my friend. Okay, now, if you're interested in the Holy Spirit, but you're not maybe willing to do a deep dive of 300 pages, I've got another book by John Stott. Baptism and fullness. Now, it's not baptism like water baptism, but baptism in the spirit. And this one's only about 150 pages, but it's half the size. Anybody want it? All right, Tim, back there. All right, now, here's the deal. I'm giving you these books. Would you hand that over to Tim? Thank you. And then when you read them, I'd love to discuss them with you guys. So with that, let's get into it. What are the gifts of the Holy Spirit? So as we think about this question... Let's start by defining it, giving some definition to what we mean by this thing called the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So here's one by Wayne Grudem. Uh, I like it. It's kind of generic. He defines spiritual, or, uh, spiritual gifts like this. A spiritual gift is any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church. That's true. It's a good definition. It's a pretty broad definition, but it's a good definition. Here's another one by Graham Cole. Spiritual gifts are God empowering his people through the Holy Spirit for kingdom life and service, enabling them in attitude and action to live and minister in a manner which glorifies Christ. So he's kind of unpacking Grudem's definition, giving it a little bit more form and shape. I like that. Let me give you one last definition from J.I. Packer's book that I think is really good. What are, what are the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Actualized powers of expressing, celebrating, displaying, and so communicating Christ in one way or another, either by word or deed. Now, all those definitions are good, but I like that last one because it directly anchors the gifts of the Holy Spirit into the ministry of Christ. And as I taught you two weeks ago, that is exactly why the helper, the Holy Spirit, was given to us to continue the ongoing ministry of Christ with us, through us, to each other, and to the world. That was the point in John chapter 14, 15, and 16. So the next question is, where do we find these gifts spoken about in the New Testament? And so here are the four places that, by and large, we find the gifts of the Holy Spirit. 
You can take a picture of that or write those down. I'll leave that up on the screen for a little bit. If you were to read these four passages of Scripture, and if you're in a community group, that's actually one of the things I'd like you to do in your group, you would kind of come out with about 20 or so different spiritual gifts. Now, I don't think Paul or Peter are intending their lists to be exhaustive. As a matter of fact, as you read them, the sheer diversity of the gifts gives you the strong impression that a spiritual gift in their mind is any ability that's just going to meet the need of the hour that there is in the church at that time. But, but by and large, of these 20, and there could be a few more, they can be broken down into two broad categories, gifts of word or gifts of deed. Especially you see that in 1 Peter chapter 4. He just talks about whoever has a, an ability to speak or encourage, and for, those of us, for us to do things, we should do them. So of the 20 pluses we see in the New Testament, they come down to these two broad categories, gifts of words and gifts of deeds. And as you read them, you realize some people have this amazing gift of wisdom, some people have this gift of knowledge, some have prophecy, others exercise hospitality, they're good at showing mercy, some are great at just administration, right? Some are actually gifts of roles, like pastors, uh, evangelists, apostles, prophets, some of the gifts have clearly ceased. Some of the gifts clearly continue on. But the reality is, as you read those, and as we talk about gifts, you can't just do, take, talk about them in a vacuum, which is why I like, think a lot of people get a little bit confused when they talk about gifts. They talk about spiritual gifts in a complete vacuum without some kind of context. Excuse me, don't drink and keep talking. Without speaking of the gifts in some kind of context that gives them shape or definition. And if you don't know the purpose of something, it's really hard to use it correctly, isn't it? And this doesn't apply just to spiritual gifts. This applies to all kinds of issues in life. And so as an illustration, I have a daily item here, a daily household item. Oh, I just hit myself in the head with it. A, a plunger. This is not the sermon that's going to make it on the podcast, right? This will make it on the blooper reel. Okay, what's this? It's a plunger. You all know what a plunger is, okay? But imagine with me if you did, if you could, we are first century people in Palestine. You have no idea what this is. Okay, try to get out of your mind what this tool is. If you were to pick this up and look at it, I like archery. So I would think, man, this, this could actually be a shorter, like a little arrow maybe that you should practice shooting birds with. You don't want to kill them, so you have this soft thing here, you just bang them. Or, or maybe you shoot your kids with it, you know, for fun. So that could work. Or maybe if you like to swim, you think this is like this new technology that you can hang your towel. So you go up by the Mediterranean Sea and pop that there, hang your towel on it, go for a swim, come off, and you need your towel, you just grab it and dry off, right? There, that's, there's that possibility. Or maybe you think, oh, this is one of those cool cosmetic things. I get a face mask, do this, and you know, or you put soap on it and you clean your friend's face. I mean, you just don't know. That you think, oh, that's, you couldn't possibly think that. That's because you know what its purpose is. But if someone were to come by and say, dude, you use this to unclog poop from a toilet. Now you go, oh, my other use is possible, but really silly to do that and somewhat gross. Now that you know the purpose, it totally defines how you use the tool. Friends, in the same way, when it comes to the spiritual gifts, if we're just trying to use them, but we don't know the purpose of the gifts, we're going to tend to use them in all kinds of crazy ways that it might work, but that wasn't the intention. So the next question we have to ask or ask and answer is, what then is the purpose of the gifts of the Holy Spirit? And to better understand that, we need to remember 
this is going back two weeks now, what was the point of the Holy Spirit to begin with? This is week one. I made the case, based on John's gospel, when Jesus himself taught about the Holy Spirit, the principal reason of the Holy Spirit was to continue to mediate the presence of Christ to the church today for our ongoing discipleship. Remember, as he's telling his disciples that he's about to leave, they don't know what that means. Remember, they're living the story. They don't know about the resurrection and all these amazing things. Jesus senses their anxiety and says, do not worry. Your discipleship's going to be taken care of. I'm going to send you another helper, and he will reveal to you all the things I've taught you. He will glorify me. He will continue to mediate my presence even when I cannot be here. Last week, Jordan picked up that theme. And talk about the how of that. And the Spirit of God does that in three primary ways. He reveals Christ, right? He, he regenerates people. He gives us new life in Christ. And he renews us in Christ. So the purpose of all what the Holy Spirit is about is about Christ. Let's go back to that definition. Now, now maybe you can appreciate it a little bit better. I love what Packer says. Gifts of the Spirit are actualized powers. They're not potential. They're actual things that happen, powers, and he defines what those powers are supposed to do, of expressing, celebrating, displaying, and so communicating Christ in one way or another, either in word or deed. Let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. Okay, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Now, keep in mind, as you're going over to the book of Ephesians, uh, the book of Ephesians, or the letter of Ephesians, was written... Decades after Pentecost, the event of Pentecost, decades after that the risen Christ had already ascended into heaven. So keep that in your minds as I read this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17. This is what Paul writes. And he, speaking of Jesus, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And then verse 19 and 20 goes on to this. This great, you who are far off are now brought near. You who are not citizens are now citizens of the kingdom. It's this great passage. Here's the question. How did Christ do this? Notice what he says in verse 17. Paul says, and he, speaking of Jesus, came and preached peace to you who are far off. Well, how did Christ do this? Because he didn't come back in his resurrected form again and just hoof it over to the Mediterranean and speak to the gospel to these Ephesian Christians and go over to Laodicea and preach the gospel. That's not what happened. So what does Paul mean when he says, Jesus came and preached to you? Paul can only be meaning that through the preaching and teaching ministry of people like himself and Peter and Apollos and Epaphrathus who brought the gospel, they were hearing Christ himself preaching good news to them. Here's another example. Go over to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19. Actually, I'm going to read it from verse 18 to give some, some kind of context to it. Paul, it says this, verse 18 of Philippians 4, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Here it is. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Here's the question. How does God do this? Verse 18 kind of hints at the answer. 
at least, the way God does this, at least in part, is through the Spirit working through the caring, gracious, generous, uh, sacrificial giving of the Philippians to themselves and to one another, just like they did to Paul in verse 18. In other words, when we see in the New Testament so often, Jesus is doing this, God is doing that, the context of the implicit understanding is, He's working through you, his church, to make it happen. And I wonder if Paul's conversion was part of the reason he understood this. Because if you're familiar with his conversion in Acts chapter 9, right, he's on the road to Damascus. His name is Saul at the time. And he sees a bright light. And and the risen Lord says to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, what are you talking about? I don't even know who you are. He says, I'm Jesus. Here's a question. Did Saul persecute Jesus? No. If you know the story, Saul doesn't even come on the scene until after Jesus had been crucified and ascended into heaven. So who was Saul persecuting? The church. And yet Jesus says, you're coming after me. You see, I wonder if that moment Saul understood there is such a solidarity between Christ and his people, probably mediated through the Holy Spirit, such that for him to come against the church was to come against Jesus himself. Friend, if you look in the New Testament, there are numerous passages about doing things in the name or the power of Christ. The point is, when Christians speak to one another in Christ's name, when we practice care for others because of what Christ has done in us, Christ in person blesses through us. In other words, friends, the gifts of the Holy Spirit continue the work of Christ through his people, the church. That's the point of the gifts, as Paul makes it clear. So go to 1 first, go to first Corinthians. If you're familiar with um, kind of spiritual gifts, maybe you have a charismatic Pentecostal background as I do, you know 1 Corinthians is, is, is a, a staple of talking about gift theology. Now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, you don't have to go there, go to 1 Corinthians 1, He says, and each of you have been given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In other words, all the Christians at Corinth, all Christians are given gifts of the Spirit for the common good. What so often is forgotten, though, is in the very first chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul sets the whole context of spiritual gifts. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 4. And then just so you can kind of catch the message, I'm going to read 4 and then jump over 5 and 6 and jump right into 7. Not that 5 and 6 are not important, but he has other sent, he has qualifying statements. I want you to just see this, the, what the meat of what he's saying. I give thanks, verse 4, to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gifts of the Spirit, Paul says, are given for the common good to build up the body of Christ. In Ephesians 4 and Romans 12, it also talks about the gifts of the Spirit are given to maintain the unity that exists. Why is that important? Because we're so different, which is an amazing thing. But in the world, our differences are tearing us apart. But the church is supposed to be a diverse community, right, that has diversity and unity, in community, and that's only possible because the Holy Spirit has made us one. And it, the way it does that is it fosters our maturity and our complementary need for one another. What I'm getting at is this not all of us are gifted the same way. 
Some of you are radically gifted one way, others of you are gifted this differently. The point of the differences is not to tribalize ourselves, but to make us realize God is doing this to build up a single body. I don't have all the gifts, we don't have all the gifts, but together we have the gifts and we move towards one another in our differences. But so often when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit, they become badges of honor, right? Hey, man, I speak in tongues. Well, I give prophecy. And then we're, I'm not going to get into whether or not tongues is glossolalia or xenoglossia. That's, that's not the point of today. It's the point is simply say that the difference of gifts bring us together. Let me ask you this thought experiment to crystallize it. What is the mark of a spirit-filled church? Is it that you have 100 people who speak in tongues? Or that... When an 87-year-old saint dies, the auditorium is full of young people because they had such affection and relationships together. What's more a sign of the kingdom of God breaking into this world? That people have these ecstatic experiences or that people transcend their life stage group and actually make relationships and care for people radically different than them? What's more a sign of the kingdom? It's pretty obvious. Where would we say the gifts are operative? In a church where prophecies of prosperity and vision abound every week? Or a church where widows are cared for and orphans are brought into families? Where is the kingdom of God evidence more? You know it. The kingdom of God is evidence not when people have ecstatic utterances or have all these bizarre visions that they're talking about. That might be the case. But where the kingdom of God, the radical new life that Christ promises is seen is when different life stages have nothing in common but Jesus and they still love one another and do life together. Where those who are, are foreign or are, are, are cast off and forgotten are brought in and loved. That's where you see the spirit-filled life. And that's what is important, to see the gifts of the spirit in the broader context. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, let me say it again, is to continue the work of Jesus Christ through his people. Now, let's hear what Jesus has to say about that. Go to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Remember, this is just rich material because here, Jesus himself is talking about the Holy Spirit. So whatever he says about the Holy Spirit, we've got to pay attention to. And listen to what he says in John 14, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Now, okay, let's step back here. Greater works? I mean, Jesus rose people from the grave. We can't, I mean, I think I've top that. So it, it can't really be that he's talking about the kind of quality of works, Right? So the greater that he's referring to, it's probably a reference to the quantity of works because he's talking to his disciples as the Spirit of God indwells you, thousands of you, millions of you throughout time, throughout the history of this planet, you're going to go on doing the kinds of things I do greater than I could possibly do because I'm limited, I'm finite, I'm the incarnate Son of God. I'm here at one place at one time, but now you're all set free because the Spirit of God indwells you all. So that's probably what he meant by greater works. Now, on the other hand, there could have been a sense that he meant in quality because the disciples, you and I, are going to be serving him post-resurrection. What do I mean by that? 
Jesus' ministry, his whole life was assigned to what the kingdom of God is going to look like coming in. But it wasn't secure and a done deal until he conquered death and ascended and made it a deal. And so he does all that work and says, now I'm leaving the job up to you. My ministry was a sign of the kingdom coming in. Your ministry is me proclaiming that it's here in, Christ, in me as I've ascended and gone back to the Father. I'm sending you to do the work. So he could mean greater in terms of quantity. There's more of us doing it. And in sense, quality, because he's already secured our salvation, and now we get to proclaim it. It's a done deal. The point either way is that the job of the Holy Spirit given to his disciples, you've got to continue what I'm doing. That's the plan, folks. That's what Jesus says. Now go out there and get it done, team. And the good news is, friends, every one of us, if you are a Christian, every single one of us have been given gifts to accomplish this task. So that's our third question. How do we discover our gifts? Let me start by talking about three maybe not helpful ways to do it. Okay, so here they are. The first kind of unhelpful way to figure out what your gifts of the Spirit, how the Spirit's gifted you, is to... Um, let me put it this way. Do not rely on your personal feelings or your comfort level. Uh, a lot of times people kind of have this mentality that, well, I, I feel uncomfortable. Clearly God doesn't want me to be uncomfortable, so he wouldn't want me to be doing these things, right? Uh, that's just not how I am, and God clearly wouldn't challenge me, right? Because we're so influenced by the therapeutic feel-good culture that we forget that sometimes, yeah, obedience is hard. It, it's, it's awkward sometimes. And I guess what I'm saying is that recognize that stepping out to be Christ to other people is going to feel hard because by nature, we don't want to think about other people. We're not, we're not like Christ. And even though God might be working in you, that doesn't mean you're always happy about kind of loving other people the way Christ wants us to love. So don't wait to feel like, oh, I just feel good about this, and so I'm going to serve this way. That's not a good indicator. That's not it. Secondly, don't assume Spiritual gifts are the same as natural talents or abilities. This is a common misconception. You, you know how it goes. Well, I can sing, so therefore I should, be on the, I should be a singer on the praise team, right? Or I can teach, so therefore I should be a teacher of God's word. Friends, let me ask you this. Where do we find in Scripture that God says, I'm looking for the sharpest, brightest, the most awesome people to be on my team? You guys, you're laughing, you're chuckling because you know that's not what the Bible teaches at all. But you see this mentality we have is kind of trickled in. As a matter of fact, doesn't the Bible teach the exact opposite? That God says, look, where you're weak, then I'm strong. Right? 1 Corinthians again. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's hear what God's word says on this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 26, listen to what Paul says to this church that we get a lot of our understanding about spiritual gifts. Verse 26, 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Now, why does God do all this? Look at the conjunction or that phrase right there in verse 29. So that no human being might boast before God. If anything, the Bible tells us our weakness is the new strength. 
where I feel weak, where I feel maybe even incompetent, where I feel uncomfortable. It might be at that point exactly that he is gifting me to meet the need of the hour because then I'm not having any confidence in my flesh. As a matter of fact, if you're just very naturally talented and, 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 and gifted, you might be prideful and arrogant. Not good for use for the Lord, right? So, that's the second one. Thirdly, related to that, likewise, likewise, the lack of natural ability does not indicate the lack of spiritual giftedness, right? This makes sense because if you have no reason to be confident in yourself, you tend to be more dependent upon God because you don't think you bring anything to the table. And so you're like, God, you got to show up because if I do this on my own, it's going nowhere. Some of you know my story. When I was in high school, I graduated the bottom 10% of my class. I had a class, class of 700. I was 613 or something like that. I once failed a true false exam because I couldn't spell true or false correctly. And I remember that because my 10th grade history teacher brought my paper and told the whole class. It was a totally different time period back then. And, and she was like chastising me for not paying attention that I couldn't even spell the answers right. I'm not sure if I actually got the answers correct, but I spelt the answers wrong, if you know what I mean. The point is, now you guys are like, and we listen to you every week? <laughs> my point is, but when God drew me to himself, I had no natural ability at all to think or to write or to speak. And I have the privilege every week to bring to you the word of God. The lack of natural ability does not mean that God is not gifting you for his purposes because you're not reliant on yourself, right? You're relying on the Holy Spirit to work through you. Now let me give you some positives to try and figure out how the Spirit of God may have gifted you because if you are a Christian, you have a gift, right? Maybe more. And in the context I have to give it to you is the church but there are other ways you can find it. Now, let me also say this. The newer you are to thinking about your spiritual gifts, maybe you've never even thought about how the Holy Spirit has gifted you, or the newer you are to Christianity in general, the more you need to kind of roll up your sleeves and just get it done attitude. I call it the ministry of helps because you just don't know. And the best way to find out is just to get in there. And so the first tip I have is service. Make yourself available. Just jump in and serve any way you can any Sunday here at the church. Just to give you an illustration, and this isn't a pitch to get you to volunteer because we have holes to fill, but it, because it's, I want you to discover your gifts. Every Sunday, it requires between 70 and 90 people to pull off Sunday morning services here at Christ Community Church. 70 to 90 people. 30 alone, just in children's ministry, 36. 30 to 36 alone, and I, I know because I asked my staff. Then you got the musicians, you got the AV tech, you got the hospitality, you got the welcome center people, you got everyone setting up and tearing down. 70 to 90 people to just get services going. And then week to week in this church, we have 40 different kinds of ways people can serve one another and multiple slots in these various ways. Some of them are task-oriented. Some of them require creative skills. Some of them are administrative. Some of them are teaching. Some are simple. Some are complex. Some is discipleship. Some is counseling. Some is just caring, feeding, driving, encouraging. Some require technical knowledge. Some, if you have a background in finances. Uh, others are for thinker types, practitioner types, organizers, doers. It's all over the map. You can serve somehow 
And, and, and do yourself a favor. And I say this because this, this does happen. People want to serve or they want to get in community groups. Do yourself a favor. Be flexible. I've had people show up like, well, yeah, I want to serve. I want to get involved. But only on Tuesdays from like 730 to 845, every other third Sunday or Thursday in the fall, but not the spring because that's my time. And I don't want to have to prepare. I don't want to interact with people, and I don't want to be responsible for anything. So how can I jump in? <laughs> you tell me. You can't. As opposed to the person that says, man, just point me in the direction and watch me be amazing. So of the two, who do you think actually wants to serve and get involved? The second one, right? I'll do anything. Give me the plunger. I'll take care of the toilets, right? And of the two, who do you think is just going to get blessed and grow? The second one, right? And, and I know that because, well, like Psalm 37, 23 talks about that. But just in my own life, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I had no idea about spiritual gifts. I never in my life intended to become a pastor. Some of you know I moved here at 20 to become, I like to say, be, get involved in the music industry, Right? To be a rock star. Okay, the, the furthest thing from being a rock star, maybe next to a CVS pharmacist, is pastor, right? As far away from being a rock star is a pastor. So how did I end up doing this? Just showed up when I became a Christian and said, look, I just want to help, whatever it is. And I did plunge the toilets. I did sweep away the cockroaches and get things ready. I was the gen- And then I got a job at a church. I was stoked. I was 24 years old. They gave me the keys to the church. And I was the janitor, right? And then at night, I taught the hermeneutics class, which, by the way, we still teach to this day, Pillars of Truth. I wrote that when I was the janitor at that church. Here's my point. By the way, I have other friends who intended to be pastors And with the same mentality of service, they ended up becoming police officers, school teachers, commercial electricians. The point simply is service shapes us. Service shapes and guides us and becomes part of what the Holy Spirit is trying to figure out what we are. Whether or not that becomes your vocation is not the point. But you serve where the need is, which is why when you look at spiritual gifts, they're so vast. Because I think the Spirit just says, here's the need of the hour, step up to it. Secondly, service, make yourself available. Secondly, community, make yourself accountable. By the way, these three things I'm talking about, they're three aspects to one process. In other words, don't just pick one because you need all three of them so that they work together. When you are in community making yourself accountable because you are serving, guess what happens? Relationships build. People get to know you. You get to know them. You start spending time together. And they start having conversations. And where it requires humility, you start asking them, hey, what do you see the Spirit of God doing in my life? They help confirm or deny, man, I see the Lord working in your life in this way. And in those conversations, if you have the kind of the boldness and the relationship and the humility, you start figuring out how you've been gifted by the Spirit in this particular way, and this is the third and last way to think about it, fruitfulness. Look for growth. Are people being encouraged in Christ because of what you're doing? I, and and that, that's just not... That can be, I'm so encouraged by, I don't want to embarrass them, but we got some guys who work like dogs through the week, and they show up, and they're serving this body, and they do it with a smile on their face, and and I tell them, you know what, brother, I'm encouraged by you. Are people encouraged in Christ because of what you're doing? Are they being drawn to Christ? Are they becoming like Christ 
because of your ministry, whether it's plunging toilets, teaching Bible study, preaching, or whatever it might be, are they being drawn to Christ? If so, that is bearing fruit. Like the Spirit himself, his gifting of you will be Christocentric in its objective. Are people being blessed through your ministry? Maybe someone's telling you that your profound grasp of Scripture has been an encouragement to them to know the Word of God more. Maybe you have the Word of knowledge. You just know you're able to. Some people are just able to contain so much information, right? Maybe someone is just blessed because you have a great way. You can take one verse and apply it to life in 10,000 different ways. Maybe the Word of wisdom is operative in you because wisdom and knowledge are different, right? Wisdom is a skill in living. Maybe you don't know nearly as much as that one person does, but you just have a way of looking at one verse and you see a thousand ways that can be applied to our lives. One may have the word of knowledge, one has a word of wisdom, right? And you know that because you are in community, serving alongside one another. You're making yourself available, you're making yourself accountable, and you're looking for fruit, and you start to realize, oh, this is where the Spirit's gifted me. Now, by the way, um, question four I can't get to question four because it's two minutes before the service is over. Um, we will get to it next week, though, because next week, this works out, is we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And notice that's singular, whereas gifts are plural. A lot of times we separate those, but they are intricately related. So this is really good, a good segue, so come back next week. I want to conclude by saying this. I'm also not saying that if you're naturally talented, that's not the Spirit of God working. I'm saying take a step back and look at all this holistically. Because for some of you, you're naturally gifted because God wants you to do something specific. Go for it. For some of you, that might just fuel your pride. You need to repent. Maybe he'll still use you. You don't know. The point simply is this. We have a way of thinking about things that's more worldly than biblical. I'm just trying to say step back, right? Every one of you, if you're a Christian, has a gift to bless this body here. And if this isn't your home church, your home church, wherever that is, because the Spirit of God wants to continue the ministry of the Son of God through the people of God. And so we need to get after it. Not just in our gifts, which are the amazing things, but also in bearing that fruit. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. So let, let's pray and hope to see you back next week. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the richness of the Word of God. It just encourages us. It challenges us. We need it. I need it. And, and Spirit, forgive us for getting all out of whack when it comes to you, ignoring you or making too much of what you're doing when you're trying to get us to think about Jesus and, and keep us walking with him, keeping in step with, with you as you focus us on Jesus Christ. Thank you that none of us have to do that alone, but we're in a community where we can keep pointing each other back to Jesus Christ. We want to make much of you, Lord. Would you, in your mercy and grace, continue to allow your spirit to transform us, to renew us, to regenerate us, and to reveal you, your beauty and glory to us so that we can make much of you. And we thank you for these things. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.